As John mentioned, we're in the second chapter of John's Gospel. Perhaps not a passage you would expect in Advent, but uh, at the end of the sermon, maybe you'll understand why I chose it. I'll read these words for us, the first 11 verses. And this is where John tells us, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now my intent with this uh, opening illustration is not to make you hungry, though, you know, it won't be too long before you get to eat, and I promise you this is a little bit shorter sermon than I typically have, what I want you to do is think about the last really covered, good covered dish meal you were at. You know, maybe it was here at the church on a fifth Sunday. Maybe it was some kind of extended family potluck kind of gathering for some special birthday or anniversary. Uh, for my purposes, I'm remembering as a child my home church. It's a uh, New Sterling ARP is out in the country between two huge dairy farms. And, uh, you know, as a child on homecoming, uh, they would lay those tables outside, and it was, it just, for to a small child, looked like the tables of food went forever. I mean, uh, maybe it wasn't all that long, but it looked like a lot of food to me. And, and anyway, if you're imagining with me, well, you just think about all that, you know, chicken and ham biscuits and, and uh, broccoli casseroles and green beans and corn, all those kinds of things you can pile on your plate. And then you come along and you see this strange-looking casserole. You've never seen anything like it before in your life. And, and you're a risk-taker when it comes to food. I'm not, but you are. And so you take a little bit of that. And you go and you sit down beside your good friend and he sees that strange looking casserole and he says to you, you know, I wanted to get some of that, but I had run out of room on my plate. Tell me if it's good and I'll go back for seconds and get some. And so he takes a bite of that casserole 
and immediately his tongue tells him it's not for him. It's just not what his palate was expecting, nor is it what he would like. And as he leans over to tell his friend not to bother, the saint sitting across the table from him says, I see you have some of my casserole. It's a new recipe I tried just for today. And now that you know where it comes from, what are you going to say? I want you to think about that because it's important that we know sometimes where things come from. That's what John's trying to tell us in this passage of Scripture this morning. Those who served the wine at the wedding feast at Cana had a good laugh at the expense of the master of the feast who had tasted the wine but had no idea from where it originated. The master thought that the bridegroom must have saved the best until last. He couldn't believe it. Obviously, that's not what people typically did. But it had happened on this occasion. The servants, they knew where it came from. And that made all the difference. While the master of the feast could only wonder about this wine, the servants, and by implication, the disciples, could marvel at this first sign performed by Jesus, a miraculous manifestation of His glory. And it's been said that the Master's ignorance of the wine's origin is an important part of the story because this Gospel of John repeatedly makes an issue out of knowing from where someone or something has come. In the prologue, in the very beginning of this gospel, and what amounts to John's Christmas story, if you will, we're told that the Word was made flesh and that He came to His own home, but His own people received Him not. However, those who recognize the true identity of Jesus, those who heard Him speak and their hearts were opened, those who believed that He was truly the Son of God, They receive power, John says, to become children of God. And so as this gospel unfolds, the fulfillment of those verses enhances the story. The gospel divides people into two categories. Those who accept Jesus and those who reject Him. In other words, the division is seen in those who do and do not perceive from where he had come. Now, we'll think about a few examples of that. Although he was intrigued by Jesus, Nicodemus, to whom we're introduced in John's third chapter, was not able to recognize him as the Son of God, or at least not at that point in the gospel, because he didn't perceive from where he had come. You'll remember he had traveled to see Jesus by night. And he left as he arrived in the dark. In contrast, in chapter 4, John tells us about the Samaritan woman at the well, who although she did not initially understand Jesus, eventually accepted him as the Messiah. 
Precisely because she thought about and believed where he had come from, she not only experienced salvation, but she was able to lead others to faith. John tells us she got so excited she left her water jar there at the well and went running into the city saying to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. And in John 4, you can read about where Jesus tells his disciples, you see the fields are, are white unto harvest. I think Jesus was seeing all of those people following that woman back to the well. Or think of John the Baptist and his disciples. You know, his disciples began to have a problem with Jesus because it looked like Jesus was growing more popular. And John wasn't as popular. And John responds to them, He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. The Baptist knew from where Jesus had come and felt no shame whatsoever at standing in his shadow. Later on in chapter 7, Jesus astonishes the crowds in the temple who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. He, he astounds them with his knowledge of the law. They thought they knew where he was from, which meant he couldn't be the Messiah, or at least that's what the Jewish leadership said. And surely they also wondered how a Galilean hillbilly could have attained such education and knowledge. Jesus responds, do you know me? And do you know from whence I come? I have not come of my own accord, but the one who sent me is true, and that one you do not know. So we see that in his gospel, John implies that until and unless we ponder from where it comes, even a miracle will not lead to faith. Indeed, without thinking about its origins, we may not even recognize a miracle when it occurs. And if we read through the Gospels, we can see that that happened to Jesus constantly. People saying to him, you, you cast out demons by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. They couldn't even recognize a miracle when it happened right in front of them. We may, like the master of the feast... Ask the wrong questions of the wrong people. You know, this is a season of Advent. This is a season of coming. Are, are our eyes open for what God might send our way? Do you look for Jesus in this season of His coming? Today, as you're aware, we live in a society where science and technology are king. And I'm not against science and technology. They've done a lot for us, and they make a lot of things easier for us, and it helps in the medical field and in lots of other places. But what I have found with most scientists and those who really know a lot about technology is there's no uh, room for miracles. 
no room for faith lots of times. And those people many times say, well, if miracles did happen, it was sometime long ago in the past. But have miracles actually stopped? Or have we either consciously or unconsciously lost the ability to think on the origin of things, the background of events, where things are coming from as they happen in our lives. Every 24 hours, the earth completes a rotation, or if you prefer, the sun rises. And it brings a new day, something that I would imagine most of us take for granted. But doesn't that same rising sun tell us a whole lot more? As it's been said, the worst we can do won't stop it, and the best we can ever hope for won't change it in the least. Each day comes as a gift. But we may never see its real glory unless we think about that day and how this entire universe is held together by the power of Jesus Christ as Paul teaches in Colossians 1. Or think of new life. We, we participated in an infant baptism today. Now you can say that babies are born every day. There's nothing special about them. But do you really believe that? Can you believe that when you're, can you believe that when you're there in that room and watch that live birth take place? And really think ultimately about from where that baby comes. You see, it's then that you realize it's not just something biological going on in that delivery room. It's something theological. Because in Jeremiah 1, God says, Before you were in your mother's womb, I knew you. Each baby is a gift. A miracle from God. You see, in the Gospel of John, knowing those kinds of things makes a difference. Just like in the life of faith, knowing those sorts of things makes a difference. But this passage also contains another important point that we shouldn't miss, and we find it in the 10th verse where the master of the feast says you have saved the best until now do you, do you see what John's trying to get across to us in this story he's saying that God has been active in history ever since the beginning of time we see that in the very beginning of his gospel in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God but now something new has occurred which completely overshadows 
the entire past. God has acted in a totally different and radical way than has ever been seen or experienced before. It's not only a completely new order, a new age if you prefer. It's also far superior to what God has accomplished in the past. This new thing He's done with the advent of Jesus Christ. The writer of the book of Hebrews states it this way in his first chapter, In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He's spoken to us by a son. He's telling us we're in the new age. And he's telling us about this son. And as he goes through his book, he talks about how he's far more superior than the angels, than Moses, than the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, and on and on. And in his seventh chapter, he says, Christ has obtained a ministry much, much more excellent than the old. John prefers to make that same truth known in a much simpler way. You've saved the best till now. In other words, this miracle at Cana symbolizes the new element which has entered the history of salvation with the arrival of Jesus, this Word, made flesh. God's doing a totally new and different work through His Son that He sent into the world. And notice how we can see this in the details of the story. For example, the failure of the old wine. The great supply of the new wine produced by Jesus, at least 120 gallons. And the fact that it's superior to the old. And so we see that the master of the feast commendation of the wine becomes a sort of testimony to the excellence of the new order that God has established in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, this plan of salvation that God set out before the foundation of the world, that His Son would take on the form of flesh and come and die an agonizing death on a cross for your sins and for mine and for the sins of the world. And I think that's why John refers to this miracle as a sign. He uses that term to tell us that it's not so much what Jesus has done, but rather the meaning of what He's done. Yeah, I mean, it's great that He turned the water into wine, but what does it really mean? The fact that this act reveals the unique position of Jesus in God's salvation story. And that's why a glimpse of His glory was shown and also why His disciples believed in Him for faith comes through the sign. You'll remember that near the end of His gospel in His 20th chapter, John has this to say. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. That verse always gets me because I think I'd like to read about those other signs. I realize John couldn't tell everything. 
But he goes on to say, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. I've written these signs down so that you can have life. And you know, John's talking about these signs, and that's not a new topic, scripturally speaking. We saw that in our first reading. Isaiah 7, the Lord Himself will give you what? A sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we know the meaning of that wonderful name. means God with us. And we celebrate that good news of God with us in the coming of Jesus all during this season of Advent just as Christ himself performed signs and John wrote them down so that men and women young people children like us could believe in him so has God himself given us a sign is it any wonder that the angel says to the shepherds this will be a sign for you you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Do you see the signs of Christmas? Do you experience the signs of God's presence in your heart and in your life? You see, the stories of these signs are written not just so we'll give gifts to one another, not just so that there's one time in the year where the world's just a little bit nicer place, but so that you and I might believe in Jesus as the Son of the living God, the Messiah long prophesied who would bring salvation to all the nations. It's the good news of Advent. It's the good news of Christmas. It's the good news of the gospel. Amen. Amen. <laughs>